My junior year of high school, Corona, California, I had a class that was so boring, I don't remember what it was. But that's okay, because I don't think the teacher did either. One day, the kid who sat to the south of me in my class whipped out a McDonald's straw. Now, we used McDonald's straws because they were far superior than anybody else's. I, I don't know what it is. It's the plastic, a little bit stricter, th- stiffer, but you could snap them. What, you don't know how to snap straws? See me later. I'll show you how to do it. But what he did is he then took a straight pin. I had to ask Stephanie Hassett, what do you call those pins? Straight pins. They're, you know, you buy a shirt at Kohl's and they got all the thousand pins in them. And so what he did is he took the chad from a hole punch, he stuck the pin in there, and then he stuck it right there and right into the T-bar, first shot. It was awesome. Thus began games of epic proportion known widely throughout our minds. We pictured ourselves to be great Amazon warriors hitting capuchins at 100 yards with one shot. And yes, we had fun. I gather that the generation before mine did more or less the same thing, but they put peas in their straws. Uh, Never mind. You know, I suppose that being hit with a straight pin through one of these would hurt. Especially, you know, I've hit you in the eye or hit you some particular place. But imagine yourself armed with a McDonald's straw and a straight pen, and you have to fight an M1A2 Abrams tank. That is what it's like to battle the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life with legalism. Hold on, because you are held. When you go into battle, it is of utmost importance that you understand your enemy. Currently, the world in the world, that enemy is materialism. That idea that the only things that exist are things you can see and touch. And it's postmodernism. That idea that there are no eternal moral truths. Well, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. And these two worldviews that we examined last week combine to be the strongholds, to be the persuasive arguments that carry the most weight in our culture today. And we talked about last week the way to go into war against these worldviews is with the cross. If you are going to battle the worldviews that attack your soul and the souls of your children, the souls of your neighbors, the battle instrument is Christ and his finished work on the cross. Now the church, in contrast to the world, I would say the greatest stranglehold that has been on the church for its millennial existence is legalism. Trying to impress the Almighty with regulations. (laughs) We should all be laughing at that. If I could do one thing, it would be to impress on our souls grace. Grace is the forgiveness of sins and grace is the power to accomplish kingdom purposes. Grace means your sins are forgiven 
And grace means you can fight and win in your battle, in your war against temptation. The psalmist put it this way, If you, O personal Creator God, should mark iniquities, O King, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, and with you there is power to accomplish kingdom purposes, that you may be feared. Having said that, with all sincerity and candor, my name is Greg, and I am a legalist. I am always somewhere in between detox and relapse in my own legalism. I don't say that because I'm proud of it. Because all too often, I remember the definition of grace, but I forget the meaning. And there is great reason, there is good reason why Jesus and his disciple Paul both spend a lot of time talking about legalism in the church. And the passage that is before us today is exhibit number one. Last week we talked about stepping onto the battlefield of the philosophies of this world. We talked about materialism, think evolution. And we talked about postmodernism, think that's not true for me. And we talked about these worldviews and how they combine these strange bedfellows of philosophies combined to preach that there is no right or wrong. And they have set our culture adrift morally and is lost. And so we said that the answer in our war against these worldviews is the cross. The cross of Christ, His work on it. And so our big idea last week was see the world through Christ. And this could have easily been the big idea for today because as I said, verses 6 and 7 serve as kind of a heading for the rest of the chapter. Let me remind you. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul commands us to walk in Christ by rooting ourselves in His Word, by seeking to understand what we believe and how our beliefs change our daily lives, and then abounding in thanksgiving. But this morning, we see that Paul takes a more religious turn in his discussion, and we will make our big idea hold on because you are held. Let's look at our text, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
referring to things that all parishes there use, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, as I've said before, if you ever run into a difficult passage in Scripture, one of the best strategies to unraveling it for yourself is to go and find the main verbs. Go and see what the primary verbs saying. Now, in this case, it's pretty straightforward. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. With Christ, you died to the world. And number four, regulations have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, all by yourself, in your morning quiet time, going, running into Colossians chapter 2, you could just simp- you could understand this passage just by going and finding those four sentences yourself. How do I know this? Because God wants you to, because he gives you the strength to, and he will pour that insight into you through God the Spirit. And with these four sentences, we understand once again that the answer to our philosophical and our religious problems is the cross. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because the penalty for my sins is paid, I am held more tightly than a joey in his mama kangaroo's pouch. I like that image. It just kind of struck me. Hold on. Because you are held. The answer to your struggles with temptations you face is to hold on because Jesus is holding you. Let's see how this works out. Again, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. but The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Right off the top, Paul jumps into it. Let no one judge you. Now you're familiar with this because in the world there is no more quoted verse by non-Christians than Matthew 7.1. Judge not lest ye be judged. Right? I mean, how many of us have heard that a hundred times? But if we are going to be diligent students of Jesus' words, if we are really going to seek to understand what it is that Jesus is trying to communicate to us, we're going to look 14 verses later where we see in verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, you're going to have to look at the attitudes and actions of those who are around you and you're going to have to seek to understand, to discern whether they are ravenous wolves or they are members of the Lord's flock. Discernment is necessary. In fact, we know it's necessary because in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, 
Paul commands us to restore Christians who fall away. So when when Paul says, do not let them judge you, the issue in Colossians 2 is that we make sure our attitude isn't legalistic. Our issue is that we never believe that we can earn something from God. Now, I'm going to be honest here for a second. This is a tough sermon to preach, not because it's not clear, but because we so quickly, as soon as we hear anybody criticizing anything that we have done or anything that we have said, you're being a legalist. Perhaps you should dress more modestly. Hmm. Perhaps you shouldn't drink as much. Maybe you should pray more. Do you ever think about actually opening your Bible rather than letting it collect dust on the table? Legalist! How dare you judge me? Believe me, 20 years I've been sitting in an office like this and I get people who are drinking too much and I tell them that. And this is my response. Legalist! Allow me a moment to clarify legalism. Because understanding what legalism is is very important. And I've come up with four different ways of looking at legalism. And the first is salvation legalism. Salvation legalism is where you take anything and add it to the cross. You need to be baptized in our church. You need to be a member of our church. You You need this or else you can't be saved. Well, now that is a major problem. Believe me, it's a major problem. But it's not one that most evangelicals struggle with because frankly, one of our core beliefs is salvation by grace through faith. And as soon as we hear someone say something like, you got to be a member of our church to be saved, we're like, whoa, wait a minute. Well, I'm not falling for that one. But I know somebody who falls for the second one all too often. Sanctification, yes, legalism. Sanctification, yes, legalism is when I believe that I need to be a good Christian, and in order to be a good Christian, I need to do X, Y, or Z. In other words, I kind of earn my grace as I go. If I pray enough, if I worship enough, if I, you fill in the blank enough, well, then God will be happy with me. Or, more subtly than that, I'll be better than that girl over there because she doesn't do that. Sanctification, no legalism, is very similar to that. And that's the lie that says, if you do this, then you can't be a good Christian. You've heard the phrase, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. It's this whole kind of pay-as-you-play kind of idea that if you do X, then you can't be a good Christian. That guy over there can't be a good Christian because he, you fill in the blank. The the problem with this kind of legalism is you're making yourself out to be better than other people and you're forgetting that you are a sinner and that you need to be saved by grace through faith. The battle belongs to the Lord, and He won it at the cross. There is a fourth kind of legalism, and I call it sanity legalism. This is for those 
who find themselves coming out of some sort of addiction. Alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. And frankly, they have found themselves in such a bad place that they really seriously need to avoid alcohol. And Christian brothers and sisters help them by not drinking in front of them. By not talking about drinking in front of them. This, I think, is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 14 when he talks about the weaker brother. The weaker brother is the one who can't drink and needs to be loved by his brothers and sisters in this process of avoiding this sin in their lives. And we including the weaker brother, must remember that the weakness is undesirable even if it's understandable. A maturing Christian won't use his weakness, as has often happened in the church, to bully others into his way of thinking. Well, I'm a weaker brother, so you can't X, whatever X happens to be. You can't drink. You can't have, you can't have a beer at Rooney's because I'm a weaker Christian. Well, the answer to that is you shouldn't want to stay the weaker brother. You shouldn't want to be stuck in sanity legalism forever, even if we understand why you're there. You and I must not make any one thing or even a list of things that aren't found in Scripture a measure of spirituality. But I'm going to time out for a second because there is another hand of this argument. Right now, in the current American evangelical culture, it is the craft beer drinking, cigar smoking crowd that has become ascendant. It is the, the idea that in my freedom, I can do these things. Well, that is true. But if someone who is near you says to you, perhaps you spend too much money on this habit. Perhaps... You spend too much time intoxicated with this habit. You should listen as opposed to saying, Legalist! You're denying my ability to drink. No, that's, that's actually not what I'm saying. But in your case, you might be. And it's worth examining your own heart. Because you can fall off a horse on either side. And when you hit the rock-hard ground of the good news of Jesus Christ, it hurts. Which brings us to the other part of what makes people upset about legalism. In the 2,000 years or so of the church, and and frankly before that, godly people, non-legalistic people, Christians, people who really do love Jesus, have come up with what we call disciplines. Prayer, worship, fasting, scripture memory. And these Christians, these non-legalistic Christians, have engaged in these disciplines so that they would be stronger, so that they would be tougher. Because frankly, this is a tough world to live in. Right? And we need the strength 
that we can find, that we can build in doing these biblically-centered disciplines to become the men and women of God we really want to be. Let's put it into one sentence. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. You cannot earn your right relationship with God. Grace is opposed to earning. And God gives us means to grow. And we must put effort into these means to grow in our relationship so that we know God better and we will therefore love Him and trust Him more. If you and I are to be the men and women of God we want to be, then we need to engage Him in the ways that He has ordained to engage Him. Grace is not opposed to effort. Jerry Bridges puts it, discusses this reality. He says, we must always remember, though, that the practice of these disciplines, and he he talks about Bible study, scripture memorization, continual meditation on the Word of God. The practice of these disciplines does not earn us any favor with God. And it is helpful to distinguish between a meritorious cause of God's blessing and an instrumental cause. The meritorious cause is always the merit of Christ. He is the one who has won for us the forgiveness and the power that we have. We can never add to what he has already done to procure God's blessings in our lives. The instrumental cause, however, is the means or the avenues God has ordained to use. God clearly set forth certain disciplines for us to practice in the pursuit of holiness. As we practice them, God will use them in our lives, not because we have earned his blessing, but because we have followed his ordained path of blessing. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. I believe that Scripture memory is the single most important discipline for the Christian to be engaged in. Why? Because it helps you when you're praying. It helps you when you're studying your Bible. It helps you when you're fighting temptation. It helps you when you're trying to encourage your brother. It helps you when you're trying to give a reason for the hope that is within you to someone who does not yet believe. Scripture memory is the single most important discipline for Christians to engage in. Or, I could say this. You can't be a good Christian if you don't memorize Scripture. I don't even need to ask you which one of those is legalistic and which one of those is God-breathed power to accomplish kingdom purposes. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is forgiveness. Absolutely. And grace is power to accomplish kingdom purposes. But we need to clarify something else in verse 18. Paul says, let no one disqualify you. What does he mean when, what does Paul mean when he commands his readers not to allow the legalists to disqualify him? Is he saying there are certain people out there who can make it so we can't get into heaven? 
Obviously not. But there are those who will try to keep you out of heaven. There are those who will want to pick up their toys and make it so you can't play with them. You're not good enough. You're not one of us. Now let that sink in just for a second. If you fall for this, for what it means to be the kind of person that allows yourself to be disqualified, a friend of mine, Jeff, earlier this week said, man, that's a special kind of hell. Exactly. And this attitude, which I know somebody who falls for all too frequently, this kind of attitude is what secular psychologists call codependency. It's what the Bible calls the fear of man. And it's what Ed Welch calls when people are big and God is small. Listen, if you struggle with this idea of being overly concerned about what people think of you, being overly concerned if they think you're a good enough Christian, then you need to buy this book, Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God Is Small. This is such a freeing, grace-filled work so that you can take another step in your road to becoming more and more like Jesus. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you. Paul is saying the same thing. And he offers a solution. solution. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Verse 19. Hold fast to the head, being nourished and knit together. You and I must hold on because we are being held. But this is precisely what legalists don't do. They don't want to be held. They want to do it for themselves. I do it, said three toddlers growing up through my house and have said their dad all too many times. But how does Paul put this idea positively? What is it that we are to do? We are to be nourished and knit together by holding on to the one who holds us. Now, I take it that when Paul talks about being nourished, he's talking about being nourished, being strengthened in ourselves. The the good news that Jesus Christ comes and it washes over us and it strengthens us. And when he talks about being knit together, he's talking about the same thing. The good news that Jesus Christ comes and it washes over us. And we become the people, the men and women of God who are encouraging and strengthening each other and spurring one another on to good works. Kicking each other in the ribs with sharp objects so that we do good things. What, no laugh? Come on. First service laughed at that one, guys. My friends, this is why we encourage each other. It's because we need that encouragement. Even the people that you think of as strong. Because, my friends, Christianity is impossible. You can't do it. It must be done for you and in you and through you because you do, after all, make choices. And this Christianity being done through you and for you points back to what we said last week. Paul declares in Colossians 2 that Christ and Him crucified, the cross is a solution to our problems with philosophy and our problems with religion. Allow me to remind us. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now I have a question. In those five verses, how many commands were there? Zero. All there was was Paul describing to you the work that Jesus has done for you on the cross. He's telling you the foundation that you can stand on when you're fighting your battles against temptation. He's telling you the instrument of warfare so that you can go to war against your temptations. Now both before and after these commands, these verses are several commands. Walk in Christ. Abound in thanksgiving. Don't be carried away captive by philosophy. Then here, don't let anyone judge you or disqualify you. Don't seek legalistic pea shooters to take on the tanks that your flesh fights you with. You are held so you can hold. You are blessed so that you can be a blessing. Hold on. Because you are held. Now, verse 20, Paul wraps it up. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you and I are finally going to flush legalism in our hearts down the toilet, the way that we're going to do it is by seeing the world through the cross. And if we're going to do that, we need to forsake our little McDonald's straws of legalistic regulations. In verse 20, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, evidently Paul believes in dark spirits of the world are involved in your battle against the flesh. I've experienced this. How many times have you been concentrating on something and all of a sudden, some bitter or some covetous or some lustful thought has just popped into your mind. You're like, where on earth did that come from? Evil spirits. Now, I don't want to fall into the trap of thinking there's a demon under every rock. But I've been to Haiti. I've been to Mexico. And I've seen the demons in action. Furthermore, I have proof here that these demons are active around me. And around you as you battle your flesh. Now fortunately for us, the good news is that the battle will be won the same way no matter who the enemy is. And that is by clinging to the cross and not my own pea shooter efforts. That battle will not be won simply with self-denial. Oh, self-denial is important. And it has a 
tremendous place in your fight. But not denial for denial's sake. Verse 23, Paul says, These regulations are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Asceticism, self-denial for the sake of self-denial, the belief that I can earn my favor with God, this legalistic effort based upon regulation is useless. Because one of two things will always happen. Let's say you decide to clench your teeth and hold your fist and I'm going to fight this particular sin. Let's say you win. What does that make you? A Pharisee, proud of your own efforts. Who was it that Jesus saved his biggest words of condemnation for in the Bible? Oh yeah, religious Pharisees. But then what about... On the other hand, let's say you don't win. Then what do you become? You become the kind of person who's constantly tempted to live in defeat. I can't do it. Might as well give up. Satan is perfectly happy with either one. That is why we need to hold on because we are held. So let's put this all together. How can we see our lives through the lens of the finished work of Christ on the cross? How do we go about holding on to Jesus because he holds us? I just want to offer a suggestion. Memorizing scripture. Pastor James said years ago, he said, memorizing the Bible is the one thing that you win at even if you fail. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, on your sheets, on your note sheets, I have... Colossians 3, 1 through 4 at the bottom, because that's what we're going to look at next Sunday morning when we get here. And I put that down at the bottom so that you can start familiarizing yourself with the passage so that when we get there, you'll be ready to hear the sermon. So memorize it. And let's say in the next seven days, you spend only 10 minutes a day, a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the evening, trying to memorize this, you will have spent an hour in this passage. And if we get to next Sunday morning and you don't have it memorized, guess what? You still win because you've spent that time putting God's word in your heart so that you might not sin against him. So how can you do it? Well, go home and write out the verse on three by five cards. Put the three by five card and tape it on the the mirror where you brush your teeth. I mean, what do you need to look at when you're brushing your teeth, right? Take it home and tape it on your steering wheel. But only look at it when you get in the car and out, not while you're driving, okay? Take your three by five card and put one on top of your, your alarm clock because then at least twice a day you will see it and be reminded. There's all kinds of things. I like using the ones in Colossians right now. Pastor Benji likes using the ones from Desiring God, um, Fighter Verses. Either one of those is perfectly okay. Find another one. If you have a smartphone, don't let it make you stupid. So get an app on there that will help you memorize Scripture. There's at least three of them that I know of on the Apple iOS. Hold on. By grasping the promises of God for you in Christ and trusting them. Jerry Bridges wrote one of my favorite non-Bible books of all time. It's called The Discipline of Grace. It's the one I quoted a few minutes ago. I discovered this book 
I had read Jerry Bridges before, and I was in Pastor Duane's office one time, and I saw the book sitting there, and I thought, hmm. Picked it up, took it home. I brought it back to him the next day because I had read it. Then I bought one for myself, and I read it. And I gave that one away, and I purchased several for you guys sitting out here. And each time I give my books away, it's terrible. You can't have this one. Um, The Disciplines of Grace. If you ever feel like you can't do the disciplines because you you always end up in frustrations or you can't do the disciplines because you always end up in legalism. The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. You will learn to defeat the indulgence of the flesh through the disciplines that the church has known for thousands of years. But you'll be doing it knowing that you are saved by grace through faith. You don't have to choose between doing spiritual disciplines legalistically and no spiritual disciplines. You can hold on because you are held. Pea shooters are great time wasters when you're sitting in some class that you can't remember what it was. But they're terrible in fighting tanks. Legalistic regulations are like pea shooters against Abram's tanks Trusting in the promises of God for you in Christ and holding on because he holds you is like AH-64 Apache helicopters. And you will win because God gives you the grace to win. Hold on because you are held. Lord Almighty, indeed, one of the most difficult concepts to balance. Help us to do so because you are greater than our sin. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing. Amen.